Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Trevor Burris. And I'm Aaron Powell. Joining us today is Andrew Heaton, award-winning comedian, contributor reason, former congressional staffer, and former primetime television writer. He hosts the policy and comedy podcast, The Political Orphanage, and the science fiction podcast, Alienating the Audience. Welcome to Free Thoughts, Andrew. Hello. Thank you very much for having me on, Trevor and Aaron. Nice to see both of you, hear both of you. So we're recording this, so everyone, everyone, because this will come out after the election, but we're recording this uh, f- a few days before the election. Um, H- Howie Hawkins has not yet won. Yes. It is still a toss-up <laughs> between Donald Trump and uh, and that other guy, Joe Biden. Yes, exactly. And so the the – the listeners in the future will know things, you know, after the Civil War starts and the riots in the streets and and we've become a Mad Max type of society when this actually comes out. But at this point in time, as a comedian, should we be laughing now or is everything just horrible? Uh, I don't think there's ever a period where it's inappropriate to laugh, including funerals. Like if, if I were – you know, when, when, when the streets are rubble and, and smoke and, and, uh, and, and your producer Landry has become a warlord, uh, and is, you know, walking around with heads on pikes, even then, I, I do not think that levity, levity negates gravity or levity negates, um, the seriousness of a situation. In, in all seriousness, if, if I were, if I were, uh, commissioned to give a, a eulogy, which I assume is the proper terminology for, uh, for a eulogy, I would still incorporate jokes into that. Uh, I, I do not think that, um, uh, that, that you need to shut down there. And it's, it's, oh, it's been a, one of the just incredible sad things about the last four years as a comedian is, uh, so many otherwise funny, talented people have willfully decided to quit being funny. And, uh, and, and it's something that, that I encounter in the field that I work in and that a, a lot of other comedians that I know is we, we'll be making jokes and someone will go, I, you know, I just don't think it's appropriate right now, you know, when, when we're so close to fascism to be laughing. And I, I'm like, you know, I, if literally you can't go vote because you're laughing, then maybe. But the rest of the time, I, I am rather stoic about these things. And, and I, I maintain a position that you ought to keep a, a sovereignty over your emotional state if you can. Uh, we should all be empathetic. We should all care about the people around us. But you should have a certain degree of equanimity. And so when horrible things are happening, and there are a lot of horrible things happening, try and stay happy. The world is no better. The world is no better for you being angry and sad and pissed off. The, the Dalai Lama, that guy, he's really sad about everything. I happy to get to bed. You look at that guy, he seems real jolly. So uh, yes, anyway, keep laughing. Is this move towards seriousness and now is not a time for laughter driven just by we're inches away from fascism or is it a broader cultural shift too towards laughter or jokes have become increasingly inappropriate or perceived as such? Like, So if you laugh at the wrong times, it's offensive to people and it feels like there's this other drive, this other kind of anti-comedic drive, which is that we shouldn't make jokes that might offend. Yeah, I, I, well, I think that there's two phenomena happening. And uh, one phenomenon is that, you know, when, when a Democrat is in the Oval Office, a lot of Republicans go crazy and think it's the end of the Republic. When a, when a Republican's in the office, uh, a lot of Democrats go crazy and think it's the end of the Republic. So that's always going to happen to some extent. That happened to some extent when Obama was in office that, um, you know, I, I suspect uh, uh, given given uh, your your position of – uh, endorsing liberalism and and thought that is not necessarily mainstream within either major party that you guys are probably never really enthusiastic about whoever's in the Oval Office. I feel that way. Uh, there are a lot of people that only feel okay and have never gotten used to it when someone from their party is sitting on the Iron Throne and, you know, v- view American politics increasingly like 17th century, 17th century British politics of like, you know, a Catholic must sit on the throne of England. But I, I think the bigger issue that you're alluding to, Aaron, that I think you're correct about is that uh, America didn't actually become secular. I, I realize that that is the the standard talking position and that that is the the where, where academia, um, you know, is, is charting it of America's become increasingly secular and less religious. I don't think that's the case at all. And I say this as a secular individual. I think that everybody that uh, up in New England that used to be a Puritan kind of just became woke. And uh, and so there has been this this pendulum effect of 
uh, the the people at parties going, you're not allowed to say that uh, has shifted in the 90s. That was mostly conservatives. I mean, if we were to go back in the Wayback Machine in the 90s, you had to tiptoe around um, family programming and, you know, the vice president's yelling about Murphy Brown being a single woman uh, with a kid. And, uh, you know, the religious right is censoring things. And, uh, you know, like, like if you're gay, maybe you're going to get kicked off of the writing staff because it's going to offend sponsors. So back in the 90s, it, it, the, the the people that um, – we're freaking out. We're generally conservatives. And and like The Simpsons, I think, is a great example of this, of, uh, you know, The Simpsons today, completely blasé. However, when it first happened, uh, and, and I think you guys, you look younger than me, but I think we might be in the same age cohort. We generally are. Uh, yeah, we remember. <laughs> right. So so if you if you go back to The Simpsons, um, when that first started, that was quite controversial. Uh, and, and I remember my parents going like, oh, I don't know. They say but and all these things. And, and then like, you know, Homer would I don't know. Homer would have an episode where he's like friends with a gay guy or something. And, and a bunch of conservatives would freak out. And then all of the liberals at the time, all the progressives would go, guys, it's just a cartoon show. It's just a big hole we shovel jokes into. It's not a spiritual exegesis. Jesus, you can calm down, just enjoy it, just sit back, right? That was the 90s. That is now flipped, where today it, the, the, the new moral majority is the woke people. Uh, the, the, the people that are going, guys, just calm down, don't worry about it, tend to be libertarians and conservatives, and it tends to be the, the very spiritual, very, uh, very, very emphatically um, uh, correct kind of re-microwaved Victorians uh, that's coming from the woke side of things. There are certain words you can't say there, and, and it's not like you can't say it because it's a bad idea. It is a blasphemy. It is an affront to the universe. And when we get into that zone where we're at now, where if I, if I say a particular thing, it's not just that it's improprietal or it might be offensive, but I have literally brushed against the cosmic fabric of integrity. That has a, a stultifying effect on humor and a stultifying effect on looseness, which tends to correlate with humor. And if we're all kind of walking on eggshells and we're afraid that, you know, we make one pithy tweet about Waffle House and our career is going to be destroyed and you know the, the earth salted, uh, then then it, it has that effect. Yeah. This story, though, the, the flip from the 90s to today, how does the political correctness of the 90s fit into that? Because I remember that being... And I was a teenager at the time, and so I, it's hard for me to remember if it was serious or not. But there certainly was this strain of political correctness, and we had the Politically Incorrect Bedtime Stories book that was making fun of it that was this huge bestseller. Was that different than what we're seeing now, or was it like a proto version of what we're seeing now on the left? Because that political correctness was like a left kind of political yes, correctness. Yes, um, yes. I, I mean – I, I do recall that that book that you referenced, and I do remember that being a rallying point in the '90s. I think that the the two um, the two phenomena that have accompanied that are one. I think that it has become pervasive in a lot of different spheres. So in the '90s, um, you you still had pretty much full reign at a comedy club and on a college campus. Uh, which which I would posit are the two places that really ought to have full range of thought where you could just kind of say whatever you want and, and nothing happens um, that that has I say college or comedy clubs absent covid are still pretty much there. Um, uh, however, uh, the the there has been a lot of encroachment. I think the fact that everything can be um, on online, that everybody can be YouTubed uh, has changed things back in the 90s. If you said something inappropriate at a at a steakhouse or something like that um, that might be taken out of context or whatever, the likelihood that it was immediately going to be, you know, videotaped and, and put on some website designed to destroy your life was was unlikely. Uh, the the other element that I, I think that, that that has happened is I do think that um, the default state for human beings is one of religion. And I, I think that wokeness is fulfilling that. And I'll, I'll, I think it is further um, kind of amplified by the fact that uh, absent a traditional community or religion in the United States is kind of everything. I, I know you guys talked about this in your last show with Steve Pitts uh, about alienation and liberalism and so forth. Um, I'm, I'm more on the Robert Putnam side of things of the, the more that um, traditional communities decline, we don't go to Elks Lodges, we don't go to Rotary Club, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, people aren't going to church, synagogue, mosque, et cetera, et cetera. The only community left standing is politics. 
And so that gets infused into everything. And I think what would have been the zest and uh, intensity people would have reserved for like tent revivals and uh, and and you know going to church is now all getting funneled into politics, which has now become not. Not the engineering solution I have to help people or how best the machinery of the state should be run. It is a statement of identity. And this, this is how I commune with the world and voting is an act of sacrament. And I am, I am projecting my values through blah, 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 blah. I find it exhausting. I, I'm still in the old school liberal holdout of like, nope, it's just, it's just problem solving and solutions. I approach politics like engineering. Uh, but, uh, but I, I think it has become an answer to your, your, uh, first question, Aaron. I, I think that it has become increasingly, um, religionized or spiritualized and that that accounts for much of the shift. On the question of offensiveness, uh, especially in terms of comedy, it seems that there's a war going on, as you said, coming from the left more, but maybe we're forgetting or some people, uh, never learned that there's a value to being offensive. Do you, I'm thinking of people like Lenny Bruce or comedians like Richard Pryor who would have been, you know, maybe arrested on stage like Lenny Bruce, that there's actually a value because, you know, it's, or even if you're a comedian in the 17th century and you go up and you say something about the Catholic church or the Protestant church, that maybe some things that need to be said, but you might be thrown in jail for. So, I mean, do you think that we should be more willing to embrace offensiveness as a general method of communication? Great question. And uh, I, I am going to respond by, by uh, pulling in the Nolan square to the, uh, the, the great joy of, uh, hopefully your listeners who I, ass- I assume you've talked about the Nolan Square or the have world's smallest times. political quiz. Yes. Yes. So, so in the same way that, uh, I think it is reductive and obtuse to look at the, the political landscape of the United States and go, well, there's a left and a right and that's it. Everybody is either progressive or liberal. Uh, I, I, I think is very similar to, to going like, well, everybody's Catholic or Protestant. And I'm like, I guess I'm a Buddhist. And they're like, nope, that's just an extreme Protestant. You're just an extreme, or you're, you're just a Catholic who likes, but nope, I don't fit into any of these things. Uh, I think the culture war is very similar. And I, I would draw it, I, I would make an X and a Y axis and say that we have been really misinterpreting the culture war in that it is typically portrayed as left versus right. And that's not it. It's never been that. It's never been progressives versus conservatives. That's not the actual demarcation or the fault line of the culture war. The culture war is and always has been between pluralists and authoritarians. So if, if you wanted to make an X and a Y axis, imagine that you've got an X axis that's how socially liberal or socially traditional you are. If you go further to the right, you want, you know, uh, nuclear families, you're skeptical of smoking pot, et cetera, et cetera. If you go really far right, you think, you know, gay people are sinners, et cetera, et cetera. You go really far left, you're like doing threesomes at Burning Man, you know, you, 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 you microdose, et cetera, et cetera, right? That's not actually where the conflict lies. It's not along that spectrum. The, 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 the conflict is that Y axis of pluralistic to authoritarian. And it's the authoritarians that have a problem with anybody stepping out of line. Pluralists can handle that because pluralism is this idea of like, I think you're wrong and that's okay. I am all right with you existing and I can work with you and be neighbors with you while you are in a state of error. Whereas authoritarians have to wrench you back and make you uh, make you fit into their paradigm. And within that matrix, Trevor, I think you're right. There is a benefit to the, the jester that can call out the craziness of a system. Now, I do think you can go too far. Uh, I'd say like uh, along that kind of uh, uh, let's say like like authoritarian versus like anti-authoritarian spectrum. Uh, you can go far enough on the anti-authoritarian spectrum that you're just riling up people for your own amusement. You're intentionally saying bigoted or uh, uh, bigoted or offensive content for its own sake because you you enjoy trolling people. I don't think there's any any value to that. I I, I think that you're 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 actually kind of damaging the social fabric. But that's that's on the extreme end, right? Um, before you get to that point, Lenny Bruce is a very good example of of somebody that is making fun of the stultifying atmosphere of the 50s and is bringing light to that situation. And uh, there's plenty of of instances I can think of where having somebody kind of buck the apple cart can be very useful. And a lot of the time, particularly in humor, um, like we we can do it in a way that nobody else can. Um, uh, there's there's a wonderful TED talk uh, by a guy named Chris Bliss, who's a, a both a very funny comedian and also like an expert 
interpretive juggler, which I won't even bother trying to explain. But in the TED talk, he talks about how um, if if you if you argue with somebody, your adrenaline level shoots up, as does theirs, and your cortisol level shoots up, and that means that both of you are are becoming increasingly less receptive to outside ideas. Actually, your memory declines too. Arguing actually is is not a very useful method for distributing ideas. Conversely, if you're making jokes. Uh, you can, um, you, if, if you, if you and I are both laughing, we both get a, 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 a dopamine kick. We get endorphins. And I have found as a comedian that, uh, when I'm on stage and I'm getting the audience to laugh, they'll walk with me for the length of a joke. They're, they might disagree with me, but they're like, okay, we're on board for the 35 seconds it takes you to set up and punchline this. And you can relay interesting information there. Like when, when I started doing stand up when I was in DC, uh, you know, the audiences were predominantly progressive Democrats. And, and I, I'm not going to go into full stand up mode. I'm just going to relay the, the content to you. But I had a joke where I'd go, uh, you know, that's great. Like I, I have a lot of Democratic friends. I, I like how open minded Democrats are about stuff they already agree with. And it would, it would get a good laugh had I had I phrased that as like, you know, I think you guys aren't so much open minded. You're just pro gay, which is great, but you're not really open. Like that wouldn't have done anything, right? But when I phrased it as a joke, they were like, ah, okay, that's true. Um, so yes, and anyway, I, Trevor, I think that there is a benefit to having outliers who tell the emperor he has no clothes. One of the the axes it feels like culture is has become increasingly concerned with, and and this seems to fit into this discussion of offense is is power disparities, that there are certain groups that are privileged and or powerful. There are certain groups that lack power or aren't privileged and and that offense becomes acceptable or not based on like which direction. So to simplify, it's the punching up and punching down. And, and so I wonder how much of what we're seeing is not that it's wrong to cause offense and not a rejection of that underlying benefit of offense of you know the the counterculture outsiders making jokes to critique the stultified and and often oppressive mainstream but instead that what's the counterculture and what's the mainstream has shifted out from under the comedians i suppose and so now what used to be punching up looks just like punching down yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. I, I, the, the first thing that I'll throw out is uh, I, I, I'm familiar with the, the paradigm you're describing of punching up versus punching down. That is a, a source of much discussion in New York comedy circles, uh, particularly amongst improv, which to get really nitty gritty, there is uh, – actually, you know what? You guys would be perfect to describe this too, and I know your audience would get what I'm going to talk about. So I'm, I'm not even going to try to uh, – uh, stand-up comedians tend to be deontological in their in their ethics. Whereas improv comedians tend to be uh, consequentialists in their ethics. Uh, and so like there, there is a flashpoint there. The consequentialists, the improv people are very concerned about punching up and punching down. And my, my, my retort to that, to, to borrow a line from, from fellow comedian and friend Joe DeVito is, uh, I guess if you think comedy is about punching, I, I don't. I like. I'm an absurdist. Uh, if if uh, if if uh, if anybody goes and listens to uh, the political orphanage, my program, um, when when I do comedy on there, it's it's in the vein of like Zucker Brothers or Dave Barry or something like that. I I, I enjoy. I, I think because I have like swallowed this rational pill and my brain is so fixated on logical syllogisms, I I very much enjoy and find um, find relief in in just going kind of crazy, you know, anchorman, Dave Barry kind of humor. I'm not punching anybody. Uh, I, I, I don't like you don't have to have it weaponized. Um, it, when when you do go that direction, uh, I, I I become very suspicious of it very quickly. I think um, ad hominem, uh, ad hominem logical fallacies apply to humor as well. The idea that uh, I can't make a joke because of my skin color, I, I frankly find offensive. Um, there's there's an increasing idea within the comedy world that um, we should have different rules for people based on race and sex. And I, I find that abhorrent. Uh, I am very much an old school, old school classical liberal when it comes to that of like, I don't mind changing the rules. I don't mind updating the system, but I do fervently maintain that we should all be abiding by that system. We should all have the same rules apply to us. So uh, if, if we're going to make a rule, which I think would be stupid, but if we're going to make a rule that you can't make jokes uh, and, and use a, an accent, like I, I can't, if I'm, if I'm describing an encounter with a black guy, I cannot make a black voice. 
if we're going to do that, I think it's, everybody should do that. Like you only only talk in your accent. Um, I, I I would not endorse such a rule. Uh, but the idea that like, um, well, you're Asian and so you can you can do these things and you can say these things. Uh, and I'm a white guy, so I'm limited to this. And you're a black, so you can say whatever you want. I I, I don't think is a way to go. And uh, um, the the other element there of you know, sort of the ground shifting from under uh, under comedians in terms of counterculture and culture. Uh, there's a really wide latitude right now, I think, for comedy that is not being explored. And that is making fun of moral certitude and making fun of people taking themselves seriously. And our culture is so it, it, it's I, I it's not Orwellian. It's Victorian. We are we are very Victorian right now. We are very, very concerned about. Uh, proper etiquette and propriety and being respectable and saying the right things and doing the right things. It's We're, we're in that category. It's rife for comedy. Um, people on the left are not hitting it because they're afraid to and also they can't in the same way that um, you know, very devout Christian comedians probably aren't going to make really funny jokes about the apostles, you know, engaging in fellatio or whatever. They, there's too many sacred cows there. They won't go after their own sacred cows. It's not really coming from the right. Partly because there just aren't that many comedians on the right, but also because the temptation is so intense to uh, to go alt right or to go um, to to go really offensive and you know kind of drop the mic and walk away that, that no one's doing what we did in the '90s, which was like, look, I'm not going to like really make fun of Jesus, but I am going to make fun of you guys for taking Jesus so seriously and like do it in a way that we can still hang out. That, that, that venue is really not being explored right now. And, and there's for any, for any fledgling comedians listening to your podcast, you could make a pretty good living. I think if you figured out how to navigate that, where you weren't being castigated as a, as a bigot for obvious reasons, but at the same time could figure out a way to poke fun at all these people that are really taking themselves very seriously. Well, that leads nicely to my next question, which is, Given that kind of framework you set up, does that put libertarians in a better position perhaps to be comedians? And I think that you have seen a lot of comedians do make fun of the absurdities of people in power. And you can see – think of movies like Dr. Strangelove, which is not a libertarian movie intentionally but has very many libertarian themes. I think that Veep – uh, has many libertarian themes, yes, minister, like all these ones that make fun of people in government as sort of bumbling idiots. They play right into ours and everyone kind of agrees with it, which is fascinating. But you have people like Doug Stanhope, who is, who is, you know, explicitly libertarian, who gets an audience by making these points about people in power. Um, so in that, do you feel that you have, you can combine that your libertarian views with your comedy in a way that is beneficial and audiences resonates with audiences. Uh, yes and no. Um, yes, I think you're very correct that by by virtue of not being on the left right spectrum, and by not having not having sacred cows in the fight that I have to avoid punching. That's a weird analogy, but I think I think my I think it, it, it I'm clear on it. Um, you you have more targets you can snipe at and less reticence to do so, and that that is that is a benefit. Uh, in, in that, um, you know, really really devout people, whether they are Christian or they are woke, are going to have fewer things that they can talk about and are going to be more tiptoeing around them. Right. So libertarians have an edge there, uh, and uh, the but the the downside is. If you brand yourself explicitly as libertarian, you immediately kneecap your potential audience. Um, right now, in particular, as, as politics becomes the new religion, uh, people are less and less comfortable exploring other viewpoints, even if it's just humor than they used to be. Um, and, and if it's branded as such, they're, they're very reticent to do so. So, uh, like if I were to do the, the, the political orphanage, my show is, is, largely temperamental. I, I am designing it for people that feel alienated from the two-party system and want to solve problems. But I don't – I'm not trying to infuse it with an ideological agenda. I have my own positions, but it's not It's not like the Raging Liberty Boner with Andrew Heaton or something like that. It's it's, it's the political orphanage, right? Um, were I to call it that, uh, the Raging Liberty Boner with Andrew Heaton or something like that, it would um, attract libertarians, but it would also immediately um, staunch any future flow from moderates Democrats, Republicans. However, when people have done that of basically inhabiting a libertarian worldview without putting it at the very front of what they're doing, they've been incredibly successful. And and uh, the the example that I can give is 
Well, I'll, I'll back up. Like, you know, I, I, hanging out in D.C. circles, going to uh, cocktail parties and occasionally to meetings with, you know, really wealthy donors for various things. A, a common refrain is like, why hasn't there been a libertarian daily show? And my answer is uh, there is. It's called South Park. It's one of the most uh, gangbusters, successful programs in American history, and it's libertarian. Now, they don't call it that for shrewd reasons. One, because I think that Trey Parker and Matt Stone predominantly, uh, I, I think, just anti-authoritarian and um, j- just in- enjoy kind of provoking people. They're, they're provocateurs, but they're they're always taking swipes at both Republicans and Democrats. In 2016, I think they said that they asked uh, Trey Parker and Matt Stone who they would vote for, and they said something to the effect of, uh, we'd vote for Johnson if we thought he had a chance, something like that. So, they, I mean, those guys, I, I have to say their, their humor is very libertarian. And I, and I say that both in terms of their political orientation and in terms of this sort of heuristic window that they operate from. Um, and it's worked very, very well because, because for all of those reasons. But they're, they're kind of uh, not duplicitous about it, but people don't realize it. So like when I was living in New York, my roommates would watch – uh, last week tonight was John Oliver, which is very progressive, not even progressive, but like British progressive. And then they would turn around and watch South Park and they would laugh at both. And South Park would like rip apart all of the stuff that John Oliver had just said. And they wouldn't even really catch what was happening. Um, that, that the, that there were these two different viewpoints. So, uh, yeah, short answer is I think that you have more opportunity and more, uh, versatility, uh, if, if you were approaching outside of the Republican or Democratic worldview. Um, but, you also have to be careful because if you if you want to hang a, a scarlet L around your neck, uh, you are going to uh, naturally um, uh, cordon off a certain audience. Confining ourselves for a moment, though, to that Republican versus Democratic worldview, it often feels like, I mean, almost inevitably, that there is a enormous quality gulf in comedy and in just art in general between liberals and conservatives, that liberals just seem to be much, much better at all of this stuff. And so you can watch as like a libertarian, I can watch a leftist comedian or a left of center show and it can be, you know, the Daily Show or the Colbert Report and it can be wildly funny. But every time conservatives try to do something like this or make, you know, explicitly conservative movies or whatever, it it falls flat on its face. Like what's what's going on there? Uh, yeah, so well, there's... there's um Two two parts to that question. Um, the first part of like why did why why does the conservative Daily Show fail? Um, why why does that happen? There's a very specific reason for that. And uh, uh, incidentally, if you have any like really deep pocket billionaires that listen to your program that are like like oh man okay I I'm going to give you the equation right now. It, it could be done, and it will yet never be done. Um, the reason that these always fail is that uh, the Daily Show when it started didn't set out on an ideological crusade. It set out on a comedy goal and everybody happened to be progressive. And uh, as evidence of that, I don't know now, but the first 10, 15 years of The Daily Show, maybe still, but certainly at its inception, they had a rule that if there was a line that was written to provoke applause rather than laughter, it would be stricken. They they were not going for applause. They were going for jokes. And that was the whole point. The whole point was just to be funny and have fun. And they happen to be progressive. And whenever conservatives and libertarians want to get in on this game, they approach it like agitprop and go, oh, man, wouldn't it be great if we could trick the young people into understanding water rights or whatever? And we'll just we'll we'll sugarcoat it with some jokes. We'll hire a, a clown and we'll have the clown uh, render it palatable. And it, it, it like pe- people can sense agitprop a mile away and, and it's not going to work. And it, and it, 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 what would work if, if anybody actually wanted to try it would be, um, get a, like, like say you wanted to do a daily show, um, get, you know, me, uh, but absent me, I could give you a list of other, you know, free enterprise comedians that, you know, read and enjoyed Milton Friedman at some point in their life. Uh, and then just give them a staff of seven writers that are really funny. They don't. They they could be libertarian. They could be conservative. They would not need to be. And and just give them the remit of I trust you. Now go be funny. Don't give them the remit of uh, it's your job to explain how uh, how comparative advantage is hilariously smart. <laughs> like don't do. It's not going to work. It's going to work for a small subset of people. For the people that already believe it, they're going to really enjoy it. But if if you just had fun and then like. 
and you could sort of tell that the person was free market, it would work. But so much of those efforts uh, are are attempting to ape the Daily Show uh, and and to do so to push a political agenda. And and that is not what The Daily Show did. And that's why it will never work. Uh, the other part of your uh, your question, um, you, you sort of led in with, you know, there's uh, I, I think you were indicating that there's far more uh, uh, funny liberals or, or creative people that are liberal. Um, I think there's lots of reasons for that, and I'm not entirely sure. Um, I think part of the reason might be that um, if if you are in comedy, um, so much of your life has been doing things for free, hoping they might yield some positive benefit in the future. And so – when you are looking at a, a referendum on like forcing Uber to do something, you're like, why don't they just do it for free? I do free stuff all the time. Quit being a dick. Like, uh, you know, just like do be nice and do your thing. And that's not how people outside of comedy operate. Nobody nobody goes like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to I'm going to create a sewage company, but I'm just going to see if it works. Maybe it'll be fun. Maybe no, no one does that. Right. Um, I think that historically, uh, a lot of the reason that there's people that are, are comedians that lean left is because that used to be associated with anti-authoritarianism. Uh, George Carlin's a really anti-authoritarian thinker. Lenny Bruce is a really anti-authoritarian uh, thinker. Um, stand-up comedians in general tend to be very anti-authoritarian. They don't tend to be laughing about how awesome the status quo is. They tend to be uh, you know, coming at it from an odd angle. Uh, that has shifted. And I, and I find that interesting in that much of the rhetoric that you see from the left is really focused around like we're the little guy fighting the system. Uh, and it's OK. Granted, right now, the White House is occupied by a Republican. But when I was getting into comedy, the White House, Congress, academia, Wall Street, about half of Wall Street and all of Hollywood were all progressive. And I was like, I don't you guys won like you're at the cool kid table. You're you're the quarterbacks and cheerleaders, dudes. Like it's like I, I'm the guy playing D and D. I'm the weirdo. I'm 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 the little guy in this equation, not you. But they they like holding on to that. Um, and then there might be some actual cognitive things going into that. I, I interviewed a really cool lady on my program uh, coming up on a year ago named Danigal Goldthwaite Young, who is a uh, really funny lady that probably could have become a comedian, but in, instead decided to become uh, like a, a, a communication specialist in academia. And she wrote a book on. Differences in conservative humor and progressive humor. And uh, some of the things that she brought up is that um, uh, – actually, I'm, I'm not going to call it progressive. I want to make a distinction here uh, between liberal and conservative. Uh, and I, I use those two terms very specifically because she only used it in regards to social issues. So for what I'm about to say, I am not referring to your fiscal positions. I'm only referring to whether you are pro-gay, thruple, smoking weed – versus traditional suit and tie, that kind of thing, right? Um, people on the conservative end of that of that spectrum cognitively prefer um, clear borders and lack of ambiguity. If you were to go to somebody who's very socially conservative's home, very good chance that all of the paintings and photographs have a frame and are very clear. Like they're not going to have like – they're not going to draw on the wall. It's nope, there's the wall. There's the picture. Uh, and a lot of the humor goes that same way where like, ah, this, this is this kind of joke. It is a pun. Like I, I know how to, how to untangle this. Whereas, uh, liberal thinkers tend to be more okay with ambiguity and like doing, um, more cognitively intense equations, uh, Again, I'm not saying that the conservative people are dumb. They like the, the raw processing power is the same, but um, the 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 liberal thinkers are more apt to have kind of multi layer humor um, and and enjoy that. That takes a little bit more throttle to get through, uh, and and so there there might be something to that effect as well. In our new religious, politically religious age, um, there's been a lot of straining between friends and family about how we are able to reconcile our political differences and still be friends uh, with each other. And I know people who have had their relationships strained with their parents and with their friends. Um, you seem to have an approach that kind of tries to at least make communication better and to stop being so uh, maybe dogmatic um, or insulting. And you kind of mentioned some of them, but how can we better communicate with our political others? Uh Great question, and I think that that has been probably the most wretched aspect of the last four years 
uh, that that everybody is you know going into citadel mode and and increasingly unlikely to do that. In politics, in particular, if you go back to like polling in the fifties. Um, and, and they'd ask like, uh, you know, do you care if your kid marries a Republican or a Democrat if, if you're in opposite parties? And they'd be like, no, why would I care about that? Do you care if your kid marries a black guy? And they'd be like, oh, God, no, not a black guy. Like there was like really intense, like, you know, uh, racial and, and religious uh, opposition to to marrying outside of groups. And both of those have, I think, uh, benefit uh, have, have changed for the better that, you know, that, that people really don't care that much about race anymore, which is an awesome and wonderful uh, 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 element to American life. Uh, however, the, the political thing is really shot up to where now, like, people are mortified uh, if, if their daughter marries a Republican or a Democrat. Um, I, I think that there's a few things that you can do to combat that. Uh, the the, the, the lead-in, I'll say, is to recognize that we all have this tendency. Um, m- me working as a comedian, I was very surprised when I started doing stand-up comedy at the intensity of tribalism in, in everybody. Uh, when you get into comedy, uh, you, you know from the onset, before you go on stage, if you've done any reading, that everybody relates to death and sex. That these are two very primordial human impulses. Um, even monks at some point had an erection. Uh, even, you know, e- even people that are completely fine with the future still fear death on some level. Uh, what I did not realize is that tribalism is right up there with them. In fact, tribalism oftentimes eclipses both of those things. And, uh, and people get really worked up about it. And oddly enough, we don't have really a, a cultural mechanism to inoculate ourselves to that. We do for sex and death. Like it would be very inappropriate for me to just have sex in the street. Uh, I, like we, we figured out ways to kind of like channel those impulses into, uh, workable solutions for society. We, haven't really done that with tribalism. What we've kind of done in the past is we've gone, well, we'll just pick an external enemy to hate. Uh, good thing we got these Nazis. Now we got Soviets. And then we defeated both. And we turned around and went, well, I guess I hate you. And uh, and so we, we don't have a way around it. Um, so noting that, that we all have this tendency, uh, I would say that the first thing, like my inner refrain uh, and, and kind of the, the ethos of, of the political orphanage is good and intelligent people can disagree on matters of substance. You can... You can to 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 borrow a, a, a Thomas Sowell line. Um, there's a very big difference between thinking somebody is in error and thinking that they are in sin. And I endeavor to remain in that error camp of I don't think you have decided to be willfully evil. I think you're probably a good person and you you have some bad ideas and I'd like to discuss them with you. Uh, and uh, there's there's a lot of things you can do there. I mean, there, there's one thing uh, called the charitable, charitable principle. Um, or, or the charity principle, uh, which is a, a philosophical term where um, in philosophy circles, uh, if, if somebody says something that is ambiguous, just default on whatever the smartest, kindest uh, version of that spectrum of possibilities is. If somebody says something and it mean it's either it's either they, they said something that is uh, um, in, uh, innocuous um, or they said something that's secretly racist. Just assume that they're not secretly racist and until they like if they come out and say, I hate black people or whatever, that's fine. You can you can call them on that. But but assume that, you know, when I'm talking to my progressive Democrat friends, I don't think that they're like when I leave the room, they they turn the lights off and go, how do we how do we further the statist agenda to control people? It's all about control. We all just want to like they don't know they're they literally want to help people. I think that they have a lot of bad ideas to do it, but they're they have some very good intentions there uh, and they're not lying to me about what's happening. Same with conservatives. Uh, I disagree with conservatives on all sorts of stuff, but uh, I, I think that, you know, generally they care about people and like, you know, they're not for like, you know, like throwing, uh, you know, like like turning lakes into liquefied radioactive waste dumps and things like that. Um, uh, so so that that is the main thing, I think, is just to, to go in with the, the premise of good and intelligent people can disagree on matters of substance. Beyond that, in terms of communication and, uh, you know, now that uh, Howie Hawkins is president and we're in the future and, you know, the last four years is very much behind us, no, none of these matters will be of issue. But let, let's say that the world had gone different and uh, Joe Biden or Donald Trump had become president and about half the country was really pissed off and probably thought the election was stolen. Uh, then uh, a few things that you could do in talking to people uh, in your family or your um, your friend group that are on either sides of this Um the, there's a, I, I had on uh, Peter Bogosian and uh, did it to talk about his book, How to Have Impossible Conversations. 
And the, the, the two, there's a bunch of things in that book. The two things in that book that I have found to be incredibly useful in my personal life are when I am starting to get into an intense conversation with somebody about politics, um, I will preface it by going, I can tell it's really important to you to be a good person. Or I can tell it's really important to you to help people. I won't lie about it, but the good news is most people are actually pretty decent. Most people are actually pretty nice and want the world to be better. So I don't have to lie. Uh, and and I, I preface that. Like, I, I can tell that it's important to you to help people. And what I'm doing is I am I am letting them know the conversation we are now having is not a referendum on whether you're a bad person or not. I am already <clears throat> I am preemptively telling you, you've won that. You're a good person. Now can we move on? And so now we don't have to have this as a proxy war for whether or not I think you're a dirtbag. It's already established. And then the next thing that you can do is having established this, that we both want to help people. Uh, I think minimum wage is a pretty good example. I'm, I am a, an outlier on minimum wage. I suspect you guys are as well. Uh, long story short, I, I, I think that you're basically kicking the bottom rung out on the ladder. And, and then going, eh, we raised the rung on the ladder and, and everybody at the bottom can't get on. You know, um, w- when I'm arguing with people about that, uh, it's, it's like if I phrase it as I, I, I could approach it in two ways. You know, they say, you know, people don't I don't have a living wage. And, you know, it's it's atrocious that, you know, somebody's making six dollars an hour. It's horrible, et cetera, et cetera. I could, you know, shoot facts at them and go, well, you know, about I think it's less than two percent of the population makes minimum wage. And of that, 80 percent moves on to a higher paying job within six months. And therefore, it is a an on ramp to the economy. Uh, a better approach is to go, well, what do we do about people that aren't going to be worth $15 an hour? What do we do about um, a felon that just got out of prison um, that wants to like hold a sign? Uh, and, and you know, m- maybe if that guy does well, he gets to move on and get a better job. But he's his, his labor is just not worth $15 an hour. What do we do about him? I'm, I'm using the we because I want to signal to that person, you and I are on the same team. We're trying to help the situation. I'm not viewing you as an existential threat. I'm not viewing you as an antagonist. I'm viewing you as a partner to help me get a better position and and help me either come out of my idiocy to wherever you are, or alternately, maybe we can come up with something good, right? But but framing it as we really, really helps as opposed to saying you. If, if I'm pointing a finger, well, what do you do about this? What do you think about this? Now I'm putting you on the spot and, and now you're, you're being, you're, you're going to get into defensive mode. So I, I think those are things that would help listeners a lot. By the time this episode comes out, our listeners will know if we've got four years of a new president or four more years of Trump. Uh, maybe yeah. not. You're getting a little optimistic there. Fingers, <laughs> maybe not. It's, we've got enough of a delay that fingers crossed. Um, has Trump been good or bad for comedy? Because he's so absurd that, you know, I, the, the standard line is that you constantly like headlines in the Washington Post have become indistinguishable from headlines in The Onion. Yeah. Uh, he's been awful for comedy. Co- comedy has suffered. It, we, we, we had like a dark age during the Trump years. And it's 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 weird in that I will occasionally see some article about like, the golden age of political satire and and the person will talk about how wonderful these comedians and there are some people that are very funny but um for the most part though the the quality of humor has declined i'll say as a comedian it's very difficult to make comedy during the trump years for the the reason that you outline aaron um a, a big part of the comedian toolkit is uh uh exaggeration and you know i'm i'm going to take something and i'm going to i'm going to now i'm going to put it i'm going to take it from a 2 to a 10 and the the gap between reality and the crazy scenario that I have envisioned is so much that we, we, we shall all laugh at this absurd notion. And if if I open up the newspaper and the headline reads like Donald Trump is on a battleship hitting golf balls at, at Democratic senators for sport – and then the following day, he like, I will hang Rosie O'Donnell from a tree or something like that. Like it, we're already beginning at a 10. I have nowhere to go. Uh, we're, like it's 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 very difficult to make that funny. And as a result, we get this really sloppy, lazy humor uh, where 
Like I, I, I love Steve Colbert. I think he's a really funny guy. I think he's a comedic genius. The Colbert Report was brilliant. Uh, I know some of the writers on his team. They are very funny, very talented people. And it kills me to watch that show because it's whenever I tune in, it's just it's variations of like, well, the orange guy's an idiot. And I'm like, oh, Christ, I agree. Can you can we? Okay, yes. Like, can I if, if we all mail you a postcard saying we agree that Trump is stupid, like if we're all if we all agree, we're on the same page. Can we go back to doing jokes? And and, and so much of it has been that I, I think. I think that's more to do with the audience than it is with a lack of uh, comedic ability on Colbert's part. I think audiences right now are so freaked out that they don't want actual humor. They want affirmation that they're correct and they just want to be just kind of coddled of, hey, you're right and the other guy's wrong. Just want to remind you that. Uh, and then the the flip side of the coin outside of the, the lazy anti-Trump humor um, – and to be very clear on this, I don't like Donald Trump. I just also – want to be funny. Um, the, the the flip side of that is that because Democrats this last four years have been so high strung and, 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 and have just been in a constant DEFCON 3 red alert mode for four years, they are not um, – they're not open to any humor making fun of any Democrats. Uh, that, that if I – if I make – if you make Joe Biden jokes – uh, you are now, you know, you're, you're now the Vichy regime for Trump. And if I'm like, I, I don't, I, my interpretation of this election, incidentally, has been America has going to pick between two trains. One of the trains keeps getting lost. One of the trains enjoys hitting cows for fun. Between those two <laughs> options, I prefer the train that gets lost. I'm not wild about it, but I'd rather, I'd rather Biden be in office than Donald Trump. But if I make fun of Biden, having already established that, uh, that, that I am now somehow a part of, of the, you know, team Trump, which is just absurd. Uh, and, uh, that happens. And the, and the other thing too is that so much of the last four years has just become a referendum on Donald Trump that it, it's difficult to even do anything else. Like under, you know, I, I used to do a, a program called Mostly Weekly on Reason, which was sort of like a Craigslist version of John Oliver. Uh, but from from a free market perspective, uh, and you know that was that was um, uh, we we were hitting policy uh, during that, and um, during the Obama years there was a little bit more latitude to do that because not everything was considered a referendum on the president, whereas so much now is a referendum on the president, and people are also kind of not super interested in stuff outside of Donald Trump. If if Donald Trump is like like writing an executive order that you're allowed to shoot ninjas with shotguns or something that's going to dominate the headlines. And nobody really wants to hear like my pithy comedy about scotch tariffs. Uh, and so, uh, so, so yeah, Trump has been horrible for comedy. For looking ahead and we discussed the tribalism and the, the religion of politics and discussed the ways that conservatives and, and liberals think differently about their comedy and art and just the world in general. And we see liberals moving to city, moving to, so we have the urban rural divide. So you see liberal enclaves and, and more rural people on the red states. Do you see this getting better? Or is there a way that we can start talking about how to make this better, no matter who wins the election to to say, Hey, you know, we can all live together, even though we like totally different television shows and we like, we have totally different taste in restaurants and music, at least we can all live together in a coherent country, or is it just kind of spiraling away? Uh, I I don't see how it could get worse shy of civil war or secession. I don't think that it I, – I, I think that the pendulum will swing back. Um, and and uh, right now we're in a very teamsy, yay red team, yay blue team kind of thing. Uh, I think at some point that's got to swing back. Um, sadly, it might be because we go to war with Iran or China uh, or, or something else or we get attacked. And, and that reminds us that actually we're not that different. Um, but I, I'll say in the meantime, though, until that moment happens, um, that conflict you're describing, I think, is most pronounced um, with people that are in media or are in politics. So the three of us um, and uh, and for people that are really interested in politics like your listeners. Um for most Americans, it's actually a lot less pronounced than we think. Uh, Morris Fiorina, a, a fellow at the Hoover Institute, uh, has a thesis that I agree with that we're actually not more polarized, even though it feels that way. We're not more polarized. We're better sorted. Uh, if you go back to the 60s, um, I mean, I'm sure you guys have talked about Barry Goldwater, 1964, right? Goldwater is a Republican at a time when there's also Nelson Rockefeller who's a progressive Republican and would have used that term. There's also Richard Nixon, who 
though a scumbag, was a progressive or it, like it, at most a moderate. Uh, he wasn't a, I mean, you know, price controls and all, like he started the EPA. He basically started Medicare, although they called it something different. Like um, th- there was a lot of latitude within both parties. Uh, if you go back just two or three decades, I mean, when, when I worked on the Hill, I worked for two blue dog Democrats. And so there was still a subsection of Democrats that either were socially conservative or either were fiscally conservative, but were part of the Democratic tent. And uh, and they've all gone into hiding. They're, they're, one of them's on Tatooine. One of them's in Dagobah. We're, we're, we're hoping for a resurgence at some point with somebody's kid. But, uh, but that, that was that was the thing. And if you go back a little bit further, um, there used to be Rockefeller Republicans. There used to be clutches of that. And so there was a period where um, if you were talking to somebody and they mentioned that they're a Republican or a Democrat, you couldn't make that many assumptions about them based on that. You didn't know if they said that they were a Democrat. Well, are they a bourbon Democrat? Like, are they like a Jim Crow Democrat or are they a union Democrat or are they a moderate Democrat? They're a Republican. OK, are they are they uh, like a, a, a George Romney moderate Republican or are they a libertarian Goldwater Republican or are they a progressive Rockefeller Republican? It, it didn't really have that much effect to the point that, like, I have several relatives that uh, while far more conservative than I am, they're all registered Democrat because they're in Oklahoma and Oklahoma was a one party state for a long time. And they when they registered, they didn't view it as an existential manifestation of their spiritual values. They saw it as a little box to check so they could vote in primaries and they never thought about it again. Um, so there was that period there. Uh, it, it turns out that the actual polarization in the country is not significantly greater than it's been over the last 30 years. What has happened, though, is if you're a conservative, you're probably a Republican. And if you're a progressive, you're probably a Democrat. And meanwhile, about 40 percent of the electorate is now independent and has leanings, but is more moderate and much more centrist than we're led to believe. Uh, meanwhile, because the party sorting has happened, it it benefits party leaders and people running for office to uh, really pitch to the base and go hardcore ideological so that, you know, if you're, if you're running as a conservative Republican, you're not running, uh, the primary based on the larger electorate or even the larger party. You're running for the people that show up and they're much more conservative. And so as a result, we, we look at the, uh, the political class and the media class, which parallels it. And we see a bunch of polarization, but that doesn't go all the way down. And, uh, the, the, the nice thing that I keep reminding myself pre COVID back when we could travel and, you know, see people. I traveled a lot in 2019. I was all over the country. I was hanging out in, you know, Portland and Colorado and Texas. Most people are pretty nice in person. Uh, Twitter is just a dumpster fire. Like if, if aliens ever come down, we should immediately like shut down Twitter and all YouTube comments just so they don't destroy our civilization. Just like take them to the Grand Canyon and porn. Let them see that. But, uh, but, but like online is horrible. In person though, like I, I think people are actually a lot nicer than we give them credit for. That if, if you, um, you know, granted, saying you, you, you who you voted is, is going to be the most like um, provocative thing you can say. But barring that, if if you were if you're at a diner talking to somebody and they're they're you know, they're for Medicare for all. And you're like, yeah, I have some qualms about that. I don't think that that would be the best way to start. They're probably not going to like throw a glass of water in your face and then stab you with a fork and like run out. Whereas on Twitter, that will absolutely happen. And so uh, the, the good news is it's not as bad as we think it is. And I do think it'll get better. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.